Oh, mercy. Hey everybody, welcome back to another edition of Book Club. This time we're talking to author Mitchell Cohen. Mitchell's new book is called Looking for the Magic, New York City, the 70s, and the Rise of Arista Records. Hope I got that order right. Anyway, back in the 70s when Clive Davis started Arista Records, uh, Mitchell Cohen worked for him, and he worked there for like the next 20 years. And he wrote a book about it. It's not necessarily a first-person account or a like a memoir. It's more a story about the history of the label, how it came to be, how it attracted the artists that it got, what some of those artists were, what the 70s were like in promoting artists like that, and then as it went into the 80s. So we hear stories in the book about like Barry Manilow up until Whitney Houston and a lot of the stuff in between. Those, I think, for a lot of us who think about the glory days of the music industry, that's what I think anyway, is that period, the late 70s, when it was it was a business, but it was a really glamorous business, you know? And it sold millions. And the, the uh, artists were all these really great big names. That's what we think of anyway. So Mitchell's book is really interesting in that sense. Uh, you're listening to the Dwight Twilley Band song, Looking for the Magic. That's what gave this book its name. And um, we also get into, he especially in the book, gets into a lot of kind of the smaller bands that weren't as big as the ones we just talked about. I have a copy of this book to give away to a Patreon supporter. I'll talk about that at the end. But here's Mitchell and his take on working in the music industry during that time. So let's get into it with you. Tell us your story. You wrote this obviously because you were there at Arista in the 70s. Give us a little bit of your background. Yeah, my background, uh, I, started, um, I started to write about film and music in the early 70s. Uh, I was at NYU. I, I was, I was uh, pursuing a degree in, in film history, film criticism, that kind of thing. And I started to write for film magazines at around the time. And uh, my, e my equal, if not more intense uh, feeling was what was for rock music, you know, pop music is what I grew up on. So I began to write for the rock magazines as well. And um, that led to a job in 1977 as a, a writer at, at Arista, meaning writing like, you know, press releases and, you know, and photo captions and then ads and bios and whatnot and then that in turn led in the mid 80s to to an a and r job which uh the period of which like falls outside the scope of this particular book but just to sort of wrap up my history at the label i spent the last like five or six years at, at the label doing doing a and r 
Now define for us what A and R is, because people uh, who uh, love it, music like me, we have, I think we see it almost as like scouting. You're yeah, out, you get to go to shows every night and listen to great music and say that's that. they belong yeah, on our label. This there's certainly the scout aspect of A and R, uh, which stands for artists and repertoire. You know, from you know the, the old the old days of A and R, which meant like you'd sign the artist and then look for material for them to record. You know, but you know, I mean, A and R. I mean, the scouting part is only is only the embryonic part of making a record and once the artist is brought into the label once you've convinced whoever you need to convince to sign the artist then it's um doing everything to you know are you basically their handler like a basically sort of that's bad basically uh the a person is the creative handler okay uh, during during the record making process you know however that goes helping helping to you know to select the material if the artist is not a writer or choose the material of, of the art of the stuff that they've written selecting a producer deciding where to record it i mean just being you know, you know hands-on on everything from the earliest thing until the record is mastered and packaged and shipped out into the world mm-hmm. at which point the a and r process becomes more of What's going to be the next single? You know, is this the right mix? You know, to send to radio, but but at that point, the you know the fate of the record is more in the hands of the marketing and promotion yeah. and publicity people. So, um, someone deli- one of your accounts delivers an album to you. You're the guy that says, "I don't hear a single." Yeah, well, sometimes I was, or or yeah. I would bring it to the promotion people. And they would say, we don't hear what could get on the radio or I played for Clive. And Clive was like, you know, they need to write a couple more songs or we need yeah. to find a couple of more songs. And, you know, it varied from record to record. Sometimes we had a lot of hands-on involvement and sometimes none at all. Uh, it depends on what, you know, what the artist comes in the door with. And uh, so that's why when people say like A&R is like scouting. Yeah, of course, mm-hmm. that's true. But, you know, but. Once, once the artist is signed, yeah. you know, that's when the A and R, you know, job really starts. Right. Who were some of the people you were A and R for? Uh, I signed the, the Church. I signed the Jeff Healy Band. Uh, I signed Curtis Steigers. Um, oh, Curtis and all three of those people in some form have been on this podcast. Oh wow! Yeah. So yeah. and uh. And and working for, for for Clive Davis meant that you also looked for looked for material for the artist that he was executive producing, which means I would help help be one of the people finding songs for like uh, Expose or Taylor Dane or Dion Warwick or Whitney and so you know that was that was the other half of the hours to A and R job. One was you know you look for artists to work with yourself, and the other was you know helping to get the material t- together for those artists that didn't mm-hmm. self-compose. That's great. Steve Kilby of the church is one of our most popular episodes and one of our best episodes. That was, uh, you know, that was quite, you know, like I said, it falls outside the scope of the book, but that was the first act that I signed uh, that had a hit with you know, uh, the Milky Way and the album yeah. went gold. So that, that record means a lot to me. It put me on the map as yeah. an as an as an A and R guy. Um, now, is it your call to pair them up with Wadi Wachtel? 
for that and, album. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, in, in cahoots with Clive Davis, you know, who you know liked what Wadi and the, um, the co-producer who was uh, Ladani. Um, oh, okay, Greg Ladani. To be honest, I mean, under the Milky Way was on the first tape that I heard of their new material, and it already sounded like a hit. To me, uh, I mean, just just as it was, and um, yeah, but yeah, I was involved in all in, in all the decisions you know, about now, you know, producing, it, recording, all this stuff. What's interesting to me about the book is that it's clear that you were at, it was clear that you were experiencing or witnessing all of the history of that label from basically a firsthand perspective. But you don't write it that way. You don't write it like a memoir when you could have. How did you come about deciding how you were going to structure your book? Because yeah, it could very it, well it, be it, your story filled with it, it could. stories, yeah, but yes. you didn't do that. Do it that way. No, and I, I, I've been asked to do that, you know, from, you know, agents, you know, uh, stuff who knew that I'd worked for Arista and then Columbia and they wanted stories about Clive Davis or Tommy Mottola and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And that's not the story I wanted to tell. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a character in the book, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm a eyewitness to a lot of the stuff that right. happens in the book. Um, and, and, and to a large extent, you know, being, you know, in my mid twenties, having my first record company job, you know, which was a dream, a, re- a dream job for me, you know, going to work for the label that had Patty Smith and the kinks and, you know, Lou Reed and Monty Python and Martha Reeves and general Johnson and, Gil Scott Heron, you know, and, you know, and it was just like, it, it was a dream for me. And, yeah. and so, so to experience that firsthand, but I didn't want, but, it, but, but I, I realized, I mean, first of all, I wrote it sort of uh, on assignment. I mean, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the book company, uh, BMG books was doing a series called the RPM series uh, of like independent record labels. Um, uh, they did a book on specialty, a book on sub pop, a book on you know. I mean, they just you know, and I and I pitched them the idea of writing a book about Aris's independent years, which by necessity led back to pre Arista. Um, you know how Arista became, right? yeah, yeah. You know the the history of Bell and Larry Utah, and you know his history before Clive came in in, in the mid seventies. So. It was kind of my decision to tell a story about the music business in the 60s and 70s in New York City that had some firsthand, you know, experience it. And obviously, 90% of the people I interviewed for the book were people I'd actually crossed paths with. Mm -hmm. I wasn't some unknown factor to them. I could call them or email them and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm doing this book for, you know, BMG Books and... Uh, I want to I want to tell the story from a different perspective. I keep calling this book um, a historical uh, remix. Yeah, you know? yeah. It, it because you know what people know about Arista is basically if they know it all, they you know Manilow and Whitney and Kenny G and Aretha certainly, and and Clive wrote a very you know definitive memoir of his own. So I wanted to bring other things up in the mix. I wanted to shed light on different corners of what was going yeah. on at the label. And then um, I delivered the book in February of 2020 to BMG Books right before the pandemic hit. 
So then everything was put on hold for a year. And then when everyone came back to work, the new people at BMG Books decided not to do the RPM series at all. So I was left with a completed book and, you know, nowhere to go with it. But, you know, I knew Ira Robbins and I knew Ira was putting out his own uh, his own books under his own imprint. And so we started to talk and um, then we ended up doing it as a collaboration on us. Was this your first book? I know you've written before articles and such, but is this your first book? No, um, I I collaborated with Matt Pinfield on his memoir. Oh, that's right, you did. I wrote that. Yes. And about two a year, I put out a book, another collaboration um, called the White Label Promo Preservation Society, which was a collection of a hundred essays on under underperforming commercially albums that mm. uh, we, that we thought deserved attention Ooh, i gotta read um, both those books yeah you need yeah I gotta, I, you know if, when this is all said and done i gotta get you a copy of the white label book i would love that oh yeah yeah yeah. and now uh and now we're working on the next volume of that so that, excellent excellent so that'll be so that'll be fun okay so um so no i, I had experience doing like a major book with Matt uh-huh. um, through uh, through the um, Scribner's, which was a major publisher, uh-huh. and then I did the white label book on an indie, you know, Hozak, and then Ira and I decided to work on this together, uh, you know, and, and and put out the book that, like I said, that I, I had I had already written, and uh, so it came out like a uh, two months ago. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's so fun. Okay, so one of the one of the things that you talk about in the book and that I think is historically accurate about the, the label Arista is that it, other than one of the knocks against it, or I don't know if that's the right word, but is that Barry Manilow's success is what pays the bills across the board for everybody. And you talk that you tell the story about Clive going on Tom Snyder's show on there and All Tom right. kind of, yeah. kind of pressing him on this. Is it true that, Barry Manilow is really your only successful. Um, yeah, there, yeah. There was the perception that Manilow was paying the bills, and hey, look, I, you know, he's certainly. I mean, you're always defined by your biggest su- successes. Sure. I mean, um, you know, and, and and rightly so. I mean, Manilow was selling millions and millions of albums, but we, you know, we, but Arista was was a very what a much more diverse mm-hmm. record. Very. That's one um, thing that I took away. Yeah, yeah. That you know, I mean, that, that that the same label that had you know Barry Manilow and Melissa Manchester from that, let's say, had easy listening cabaret part of New York, had you know Gil Scott Heron and Patti Smith and Lou Reed and and then the yeah. Kinks and and then built up a a, you know, a pretty a solid R and B roster and was doing. You know, adventurous things like signing Anthony Braxton and, and you know, and uh, all, all the people that were on Hours to Freedom and Novus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, I mean, they, you know, did original cast albums and comedy albums and and and, and, and disco albums. It was a very much. I mean, it was never a huge label at the time. Maybe the roster was thirty-five or forty artists, mm-hmm. out of which five or six maybe eight you know could be considered that easy listening stuff you know yeah air supply air supply and, and melissa yeah and that was stuff. a big one for you guys too air supply 
Oh yeah, yeah, huge. And uh, look, and you know, every record label is happy to have pop hits. I mean, you know, what, no matter what you are. Uh, I mean, Huey seems to have news. had really good. Uh, Huey was Huey with you guys? No, no. But I'm saying, but the label that had Huey also had, you know, you know, Blondie and Jethro Tull. You know, so it's like, yeah. you know, you know, you diversify and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's you know, it's like you know that we that we were so active in in like funk and yeah jazz and you know and uh, it, it, you know it sort of gets underexplored and. And, Clive and seemed to have good ears for ballads. I've had people, several oh, people absolutely. on here. Look, some of them Look, love him and some yeah. don't. You know? Oh, absolutely he does. I mean, yeah. and, 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 you know, and you knew when, when you brought him a song, you know, that, you know, if he would give you his honest opinion as yeah, whether it, it. It, could, it, would, it would be a hit or not. Yeah. And, um, but he also knew when not to intervene. I mean, he, didn't he, you know, when you're signing artists like Lou Reed and Ray, you know, Ray Davies and um, and Patty and Biggie Pop, and you know, you're not gonna uh -huh. tell them how to write, what to write, or you know, right. you're not gonna bring them out outside material unless you have like a a masochistic wish. And you know, and I've you know, he signed the Grateful Dead, and, and you know, but. Signing the Grateful Dead is not the same thing as signing Dion Warwick. I mean, yeah, right. Dion Warwick came in the door thinking that her days as a as a major recording artist were over, uh, and she, you know, she was ready to hang it up. And, and and Clive, to his credit, said, "No, you know, it's not all. I mean, we'll find you the songs, all the songs that I've been finding from from Manilow. Yeah. Let's just find. Let's 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 read. Let's." Let's keep doing that. Let's keep, yeah. you know, I mean, all the songs that were accumulating, we need other places to put them. Yeah. So he, you know, he got Manilow involved in, in, in her record and it did very well, which yeah. got the attention of Aretha, who was not doing that well at Atlantic after a long, long stretch of, you know, astonishing success. And Aretha took note of that and basically said to Clive, I want you to do that for me too. And, you know, and that's you know, that's his where reputation free way of love is, comes from. Yeah, I mean, it's like yeah, and it's like hooking them up with the right producers, whether it's um, Nardo Walden or you know, yeah. and you know that and look, that's one of his gifts. I mean, yeah, is, it know, really is. And, and um, but you know, he knew that he was never going to tell the Grateful Dead what to do, right. you know, and, or, or Patty Smith and. Patty Smith walked in the door with "Because of the Night," and we were we were all thrilled, of course, you know. But you know, it, it came about organically. She and Springsteen had were working with the same guy, Jimmy Iovine. Yeah, they were. You know, the Springsteen was was writing more songs than he could possibly put on his next album, and you know, some walked it, you know, over to Patty, and she's like, "Yeah, I can do something with this," and. You know, it became hers. You know, she yeah. stamped it, which is the which is the most natural way. You know, of her coming up with a hit. You know, mm -hmm. it's just like you know that it was. You know, Springsteen gave you know gave it like you know the hook and the structure. Yeah, she gave it her sensibility with her group, and you know, and yeah. you know, I was in the audience the first time she played that song live. Um, you know, before the album came out, 
And those of us that were there at that show were able to go back to the Arista offices and say, uh, we think, you know, we think she has her hit record. We have, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's so exciting to be in the room when you're hearing something like that for the first time. It's like we were saying like off mic before, like hearing how I know for the first time in an yeah. A&R meeting. And yeah. just going, oh my my goodness! That, you know, this is everyone in the world's going to hear the song. Yeah. you know, in a few weeks. So Lenny K was on here earlier this year, and he's Lenny. Such a great Lenny, I've, I've known forever. He, he, yeah, he he was very very cooperative with the book. And well, your book, uh, I was going to say, reminds me of his last book, Lightning Striking. Lightning because Striking because it's is, this is, dense history of rock in a lot of a niche of rock. You know, yeah. Lenny, my God, he's so he's so knowledgeable, so talented, and and, and so forthcoming with 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 all his knowledge and talent. He he also con- contributed an essay to the other book I did, the White Label book. Oh, fun! Yeah, so yeah, I've known him forever, and uh, you know, we had crossed paths when I was a rock writer and he was a rock writer. I mean, yeah. we sort of knew each other, and then we met at at Arista when you know when when I got there in '77. Um, and yeah, I've known since. Um, yeah, I mean, I loved his book. Uh, I did too. Lightning striking is exactly my kind of book. It's yeah, you know, it's 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 got all you know all the you know all the, uh, the enthusiasm, you know, the passion and 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 the knowledge and you know the research. It's just it's beautifully done. Yeah. It is. Um, I wanted to ask you. You mentioned in the book, in fact. You and I think David German and a couple other people mentioned that your one of your biggest regrets is not working harder for Heaven Seventeen, and that's interesting. Tell me more about that, or maybe it wasn't you, but other people had said that. Tell other me people why mentioned you guys feel it. That. Yeah, it was like you know, then, you know, Jim, Jim, uh, uh, who's the head of sales, Jim Qualley, and and Dave German both both brought up Heaven Seventeen as an act that they thought. You know, could have kept, you know, if that one song that Let Me Go song had broken, like the way like the church record did or a depression uh-huh. mode record did or whatever they that that you know that could have been a platinum album. Um easily. I mean it's just yeah. you know it caught it, you know, it caught the moment. And look, a, a lot of this book is uh you know on, on purpose <laughs> about the things that we believed in. That for whatever the you know the quirks and arbitrariness of the record industry didn't connect, you know, yeah, yeah. records like you know David Foreman and Willie Nile and, and um, the Pop and Dwight Twilley and you know records that we had great hopes for and great right. enthusiasm for and put great eff- effort into. I mean, you know, they were heavily like promoted and worked at retail and, and, and advertising and radio and for whatever reason you know yeah records slips through the cracks and yeah. you know and, and part of my wanting to tell the story was one to tell the story of well a few things one was what it was like to be in the music business in the 70s in new york city when all this uh-huh. was going on and another to sort of shed light on records that and, and artists that everyone you know had had belief in and and you know and made records that people should know yeah. even, you know even though they didn't you know connect connect on a commercial sure. level 
Sure. And also to point out, you know, the very different A&R philosophies of, of Larry Utah at Bell and, and, and Clive Davis at, at Arista, you know, it's just Larry Utah ran Bell, you know, pretty much as a clearinghouse. I mean, he didn't, he didn't make records. He made deals with people who made records. Mm-hmm. He made deals with, you know, Alan Toussaint and Marshall Seahorn in New Orleans and the Memphis guys that brought him the box tops and uh, people in England like uh, Larry Larry Page and Mickey Most. He farmed all that out. He didn't have, you know, in-house A&R the way we know it or the way every other important indie that we know, like yeah. Motown or Atlantic or, or Chess or whatever. I mean, those were... A&R sources, you know, you walked in the office of Motown and, you know, played for those people. And he, that's not how he worked it. And to his credit, he put out a lot of great records and a lot of hits. But in the post, like to say, post, let's say post Woodstock era, when albums became like the predominant, you know, means of musical communication, Bell was caught a little flat footed because they didn't really do artist development um they did uh artist acquisition and when and when clive davis walked in there it was with with the mandate um to do what he'd done at columbia to do you know to sign album acts like you know when the way he'd sign you know santana or mm-hmm. big brother and the holding company or the electric flag or, you know and that to me was like a such a significant philosophical switch yeah that 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 happened in, in you know in the transition from bell to Arista. yeah yeah tell me what a typical day because i think regular people if we know anything about the music industry in the 70s what we know is from that crappy tv show vinyl that- uh, yeah <laughs> people bring that up a lot i bet they uh-huh. do and uh, I just and, see that yeah, show as a real yeah, missed that, opportunity because it ended up being about a murder and family drama. Nobody, oh, my God. The music yeah, industry the, 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 stuff is enough. That, that show really rubbed me the wrong way. And me I was too. so looking forward to it because it was like my time. In the exactly. Stuff. Um, so and tell me what a typical the, day at work for you was like. You roll in <laughs> around what? You've been out all night at a show. Oh, probably it's doing so drugs weird. No, or because like you know, we were expected to be in the office like a normal time, like uh-huh. you know, 9, 30, 10 o'clock, whatever. Uh-huh. I mean, a large part of the day was spent um, listening to tapes, listening to demos, um, listening to mixes. I mean, just, you know, sitting in your office and listening to music, which sounds great if you're a music fan, except when you realize that what 90% of what you're listening to is not particularly good. Right. <laughs> uh, because you're going you're going through all these submissions and you know, you have to write, you know, you know, write write back a letter or so, you know, I mean I tried not to be like a form letter. I tried to actually address what was going on in the music. Right. So, you know, a big chunk of the day is, is that. A big chunk of the day is just like going through, you know, the stuff that's come in. A lot of it is spent uh in Clive Davis's office if you're if yeah. if you're an AR person. And, you know, when people ask, like, you know, how do you get anything done if you're sitting in, in his office all day? 
And I tell them, it's like, if you can't learn how to do A&R from sitting in Clive Davis's office <laughs> and, and seeing him talk on the phone with, with, you know, producers and artists and songwriters and mixers and mastering engineers and managers, it's like, if you can't pick up how to do this, then probably you shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, that was my A&R education. And then, you know, and then, you know, it's the end of the workday and it's not because, you know, you roll out and yeah. you're, you're, you're meeting up with uh, music business attorneys or managers who have things to pitch or you're, you know, you're meeting up with your A&R, other A&R friends from other record labels for drinks. And then it's like, oh, let's go catch this act at CBGB's or, yeah. you know, but, you know, so we had a professional life that looked very much like a personal life. Uh-huh. Um, and we were all, you know, at the time in our, you know, late twenties, early thirties, most of us were single and, you know, it was, you know, it was, it, it was all encompassing. It yeah. was, it, it was, let's check this out. Let's go here. Let's go to this A&R convention in Nashville. Let's yeah. go down to Austin for South by Southwest. Let's, we, you know, let's, you know, let's, I'm making a record in LA. I've got to be out there for a few days or I've got to go to, you know, fly to London and, and, you know, and oversee a record for a few days and hear mixes and stuff. Goodness. So Goodness. Those it, are the days. I mean, look, I, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that it's, that it isn't an incredible experience. It is. It, it was like I said, like a, a dream experience for someone who, who grew up, you know, accumulating records and listening to the radio constantly. But it's not, I mean, as it, it's not as it's depicted in every movie or TV show that you've ever seen about the music industry. Yeah, yeah. It's not all limousines and, and, and cocaine and, and, yeah. and, 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 uh, and hookers. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say there weren't any, but <laughs> that, it's so not, not every not, day. Like, not in my personal experience, but yeah, it's not yeah. Like I, Okay. Not, not like I didn't observe it, but yeah, uh, I mean, it still it's, sounds it's, like a dream job. It, yeah. I mean, especially then, I mean, um, I mean, New York was definitely having a hard time, you know, economically and you know, crime wise and stuff, but culturally, you know, SNL was, was, was in New York and, yeah. you know, and you know, I was the, the, the only out the original cast album from Saturday Night Live and and what was happening downtown at CB's and we were at the bottom line all the time and at the, the jazz clubs and so you know it felt it felt like a renaissance. I mean yeah yeah, yeah and and certainly there was excitement and and it was a time when you can stumble into a showcase uh-huh. and know within two songs whether something special was happening on stage. Yeah. Yeah. And an artist could, and, 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 and it was a time when the rock press mattered. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd read yeah. a review in the Village Voice or, or yeah. Rolling Stone or, or John Rockwell in the New York Times or Robert Hilbert in the LA Times saying, like, you got to see this, yeah. you know? Yeah. And then we, you know, we'd all go, you know, and it, would, it, it was like you, you felt like you were part of a community. Yeah. Uh, you felt like, you know, on any given night, you can stumble on something that is not to be over dramatic, but 
life changing because yeah. you know one day like you, you could get a review in the New York Times and the next day you know like all the all the record label heads are lined up to see what the, the hell like John Rockwell was talking about right there was that sense of urgency and a sense of excitement that led to uh Patty Smith and the, and, and the Ramones and Talking Heads and Blondie and and you know and and up to and including you know Barry Manilow at Continental Baths and at Reno Sweeney and right. uh, then like Whitney Houston at Sweetwaters or at Seventh Avenue South and yeah. you know I, I don't I don't see that as being you know the creative vocabulary of the record business now no not even close no way you know it, but it seemed like yeah let's just hop in a cab and see yeah. what this is all about and and you knew that you're not the only one that's going to be there you know you know that all your friends from you know electra and island and mca and you know epic and you know they're all going to be there and uh and and your friends and competitors and look it was it was an exciting time and like i said i, I wanted to capture the time you did. without it being a story of oh and then i went to see this and then yeah. we went and then we stumbled on this and you know this is what happened to me at this convention because it doesn't really matter what happened to me personally right at any at That's any true. given arista convention i was just like one of a hundred people that was on the boat but but i wanted to convey a feeling of what it was like yeah let me um before we wrap up let me throw some names at you and tell me stories that you remember about yeah. artists okay first of all tell me about well in the book haircut 100 comes up and uh i love that first that well only well the first album, the only the only album yeah yeah with nick hayward pelican yeah. west it's one of my favorite albums ever and i think nick hayward is a genius i think he's a, an incredible songwriter and it was fun to hear you guys the 80s is more my period, so I loved all the 70s stuff, but when you started name-dropping 80s bands that I recognized. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Tell look, me about we Haircut were, 100. We had the Haircut group, and we, you know, at the same time, we had like Flock the Seagulls from Jive and Heaven 17. And, and you know, we were, we, were, we were in that world. You know, we had, you know, had a group called The Members. I don't know if you yeah. know them. But yeah, working Girl. Heaven 17 were just a delight. I mean, it's just like, I don't know if you ever got to see them live uh-uh. on that one, one American tour that they did, I guess. I mean, I, yeah. I guess they've been here a little bit longer, but you know, but there was just something, you know, it's like, it's rare that you describe something as being like, you know, hooky and effervescent, but also kind of funky and, uh, and, and you know, great like the sensibility pop sensibility for sure and a, a front person who is very you know good looking and animated it's one of those it's one of those deals where like everybody that saw them I, you know i remember seeing them here um in my neighborhood at the ritz you know that it was just it was just something that sent everybody out on a high you know it's just like oh and then i i talked to people who ran the English office, you know, I mean, they were signed through our UK company. We didn't, we didn't sign them personally out of New York, but, and they, they knew that a second haircut 100 album was just going to go through the roof. It would ship platinum in the UK. And they, they, they had been like built up enough in the United States that even though 
love plus one or favorite church didn't didn't really click that with the right record there was enough goodwill stored up and then as things happen well, you know they, they you know, the band just imploded yeah you know they, they imploded before nick hayward meant anything in, in america as a, a solo artist even though you know we did put out his solo album yeah. and it's just one of those one of those missed opportunities you know why flock of seagulls and not haircut 100 uh, you know the right the right song uh, at, at the right moment it, it, it's very hard to quantify these things yeah. I mean, sometimes the music business is very quixotic you know very very arbitrary um, what about um graham parker i love graham that. parker man i was a you know i was a rock critic and when the first oh well i guess still i am but when the first two albums came out on Mercury, Howlin' Wind and Heat Treatment. So when I got to Arista and found out that uh, that the label was going after Graham Parker and the rumor, I just thought they were one of the best live bands on the planet. I, you know, I would go see them. You know, I saw them at the bottom line. I saw them like everywhere that they played in the city. Another case where, you know, everything seemed aligned. You know, like everything was like, you know, there's a, a little bit of an Elvis Costello thing going on, which is a whole, whole other story. And there's a little bit of a Springsteenish thing going on, but a little bit of rock revivalism going on. A little, it, it, it's like and strong songwriting, and yeah. you know, like I said, one of the best live bands you would ever see. And squeezing out Sparks was, you know, a masterful album. It was you know, produced by Jack Nietzsche who had an impeccable, you know, track uh -huh. record. I mean, it was Phil Spector's arranger and, and the record, you know, won like every, every best of poll at, at the end of, you know, at, at the end of that year, it just seemed like he was poised to be, you know, the next one, the, yeah. you know, the next guy. Who's to say why it didn't happen? I mean, I mean, it happened. He had a career. I mean, yeah. but uh, you know, it just sometimes, yeah, it, it's a it's a still a puzzle to me, you know, right. why why Graham Parker and the rumor weren't as big as I don't want to say like Springsteen and the East Street Band, but you know Elvis and Elvis sure. and the attractions and sure. you know and Should have had some. um, but yeah, it was it was a great disappointment, and especially since the album was so highly acclaimed, and that you know Arista you know sent out a Un unprecedented as far as i know a live version of the album to everyone radio like in the sequence of the album wow. just to show like how well this translates how you know how well you know and you know i'm sure and i'm sure a lot of stations picked up on that but you know as, as strong as his live shows were and as good as those albums were he was another one of those artists that uh, just wish people would find those Arista albums and Same. like talk more. Not just squeezing out sparks. I think yeah. I think all of his Arista albums have good moments on them. And you know, were you at Arista when uh, Millie Vanilli happened? Yeah, I was. You want to talk I about was. it? Uh, yeah, if you want me to. It's uh, not the book, but tell it, me about yeah, it. Yeah, it'll take it'll take a while. 
here's my here's my basic my basic take on Millie Vanilli is this: for for everybody that says that people at the record label should have known that Rob and Fab were not the singers on the record, I always ask like, well, how how might we have known? I mean, we didn't showcase them live. We didn't ever see like video of them singing live. The record was made in Germany, you know, uh-huh. and sent and sent to us with a, a list of you know people who appear on the record. Here are the credits. Uh-huh. Um, here is a video with them lip syncing. Everybody lip syncs in videos. Right. right. Um, the idea that somehow we should have you know deduced right. that 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 the voices on good girl you know it's true or baby don't forget my number or, or whatever were not as as represented by frank farian it, it, it's kind of wild to me so obviously that's one issue the second issue is once they did come to america and we realized that their command of english was less than great and that you know and then they were still like singing to tracks or lip syncing to tracks of live performances uh, you know i'm not going to say that there was that, that that there wasn't you know suspicion because mm-hmm. there certainly was i certainly was mm-hmm. yeah but at the time you know the, the the one show that got them caught out so to speak was was like an mtv show where i would imagine that all the artists sang to track at least to, to you know to some degree or right. another Right, and as far as the, like as far as like the overall fakery goes, um, once you gave Millie Vanilli a Grammy Award, you know, don't take it back. I mean, it's like you know, you gave the award to the thing, you know, to the project. Yeah. You know, not to no one ever thought that these two guys were like great artists, great songwriters, and you know even great singers, the singing on those records is not particularly stellar. You know, we're not, we're not talking about like, you know, Sam and Dave here. Right. Right. Um, and, and the outrage seemed a little bit manufactured to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. People felt fooled by it. You know, you see pictures of the Partridge family on a Partridge family album. You know, that Susan Day and Danny Bonacucci are not singing. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's like a souvenir of the videos that you uh-huh. like on TV and the songs you hear on the radio. It's exactly the same record that you heard when you put it on your turntable. Don't look at the cover and just listen yeah. to it as the record that it is. So let me yeah. ask you this: Was there I a mean, moment? I find, the, I find the whole. I find the whole thing. It's like a. It's like a, I say. It's like a movie. It's like a yeah. like a screwball. It's like a screwball comedy and like <laughs> Frank Ashlyn or like you know. Preston Sturgis right. could have made a Millie Vanilli movie and people would have thought it was hilarious. Like these two guys from Germany who you'll get caught up in this record company scheme and then have to come and pretend to be the guys on the record. Yeah. To me, to me, it's, it, it, it's hilarious. And the fact that so few people demanded their money back and right. changed the album. I actually, it's like, a great you know, album. They got it's rid just of the not album. the two guys on the cover. Those songs are solid, you know? Yeah, yeah, blame it on the rain, you know, God, yeah. God, God bless stuff. Diane. Uh, you know, she's 
you know, I, 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 I was in, I was in a, a, an Uber, you know, not, not too long ago. And I heard like two, like Diane Warren hits back to back. I heard, uh, you know, I don't want to miss a thing by, by Aerosmith and, and, and some other one. And when I got to where I was going, I said to my friends, look, I, if this whole Millie Vanilli thing hadn't blown up, they would have played Blame It on the Rain right after that. Right. It, it's like, it would have been like, it, 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 it's it's exactly in that zone of like, when she was just like writing all these like natural hit songs. And, totally. and you know, it's, you know, it was sort of like an, an inevitable hit and, you know, a good song, you know, yeah. for what it is. And yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, well, so let me let me interject. I, I, yeah, I, I don't talk about this in the book because it falls outside of the scope of right. Iris's independent years. But 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 people is there ask a me moment? about it, and I'm, and I'm happy to talk about it. Okay, is yeah. there was there a moment when in the office people knew that they weren't actually singing, and there was a gap between when that knowledge, when people had that knowledge, and when the band got found out. Or did you, uh, there's no way you guys found out when the rest of the world found out, or did you? I think and if there was people, a gap, how long was that gap? Oh, like we a, knew they like, weren't singing for six months before you guys did. Oh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the, what record the, anyway. I don't know what the time gap was. Some people say it was between the time when the tape broke down at the MTV show and. When when the story broke in the L.A. Times, I don't I don't know what that oh, time timeline okay. is. Some people say like you should have known then. Uh huh. And I, I, you know, I don't know from first. I mean, my my first suspicion was, you know, when I heard them give an interview, and I'm yeah. like, they you know, they can barely speak English. I mean, I, but then again, I guess I guess there are people who can't who can yeah. sing phonetically and not necessarily speak the language that well. Yeah. Look, look, I always, I mean, but yeah, yeah. I'm not that, I'm not that okay. torn up about it to me. Okay. It's I, I'm saying though, like, you know, it's like when Phil Spector said that, you know, the, the darling love and the blossoms were the crystals. All right. They, you know, for yeah. that moment, they were the crystals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just realized that I'm wearing the shirt of a band that I believe was on Arista, the Cruzados. I man, I wish I, I wish the book had gone in, into that era because that was kind of fun. I love um, that band. Man, Tell me about them. They were great. Um, damn, that first album of theirs, yes. so so good. And then we got a track of theirs on the Roadhouse soundtrack. Yeah, yeah uh -huh. that did pretty well, and you know. Um, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting era. That era when I was doing A and R and working with Jeff Healy and um, you know the you know the label signed signed the Cruzados. We didn't have a lot of luck with that with with them. Um, yeah. and it's not again not for lack of trying. You know, they went on the road opening for Fleetwood Mac, who arguably at that point in time were you know you know the biggest act there was. Yeah, I. I that's another. I mean, I like I said, it falls outside my scope, but okay. but if I were going to write a book about you know the eighties and nineties, yeah, there would be a chapter on on the on the Cruzados. Yeah. What about Thompson Twins? They come up near the end of the book. Yeah, that's from that same period, that same that early MTV period. Yeah. 
flock of seagulls and haircuts. These and, bands are on the um, Nothing in Common soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, they did the theme for that. Look, they they did break through. I mean, they headlined the Garden. Sure, sake. they were huge. Uh, they were, them. yeah, that Hold Me Now record, Dr. Dad. They played at Live Aid and sang with Madonna. I mean, yeah, that was, yeah, yeah, that was a that was a fun one because you know, once in a while, you get the right the right record at the right time with the right image, you know, and everyone everyone had great fun with the well, they're not named Thompson and they're not uh-huh. twins and they're right. not even related, and it's like. You know, so there was like a, a kind of like a press hook, you know, you know, in, you know, integrated and inter, inter, you know, I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it was fun to watch it happen. Yeah. What about, well, what about Lou Reed? I mean, Lou, he's a prickly uh, guy and you worked with him during that time. Yeah, I, I, well, I didn't say I worked with, I mean, we had, we had a couple of encounters uh, okay. when I was in, when I was in publicity and, you know, he was never that happy with anything that was ever written about him from the record company's point of view. And I had to deal with that for a bit, but, you know, we ended up getting along fine. And, you know, I, I, I was there the nights at the bottom line when he recorded that notorious live album. Um, yeah. And, you know, when we just knew that, you know, it's like, the idea was because you know it was the age of the live double album, and Lou Reed had been had put out two albums on Arista, and then I guess we figured, well, if we get a live album out of Lou Reed, we'll have some of his classic songs in our catalog. You know, he'll do I don't know Sweet Jane or I'm Waiting for My Man or Rock and Roll, and we'll have a double live album from Lou Reed, and. Uh, just knows we never expected that he would deliver a, an album that was like one third music, one third like harangue. Uh-huh. Uh, like on the stage of the bottom line, you know, you get talking about, you know, whoever was in the audience, he was like, he, it was like a roast a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I guess if we, we were sitting there in the audience at the bottom line and thinking, well, all this will be edited out. And, he'll compile like a regular right but he never did anything regular (laughs) so although we got a record that has some really good performances of some of his great songs on it Mm -hmm. we also got a record that it's hard to listen to over and over again i mean yeah because it's a lot of it is like he's you know like he's making wisecracks and venting uh, about about rock critics and, but it's certainly a document and it's yes. like you know you, you know if you if you want to if you want a snapshot of, of lou and you know in the late 70s you know you could do a lot worse than playing them take no prisoners once good point yeah <laughs> yeah okay so last thing tell me your favorite firsthand experience story um Something that you saw or witnessed yourself, a conversation you had with someone, a crazy show, someone was in the office and they acted strangely, or they were cooler than you thought, or not as cool as you thought. What's your favorite firsthand experience story from all of this? Well, I I alluded to it before, you know, it's like I was a huge fan of horses um, and I loved, I loved 
of that record. I, I loved her. I loved Patty. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I got, I, you know, I, I started to work at Astra in the summer of 77 and she was, she was kind of in quasi seclusion then because she had had an accident. Mm-hmm. Um, she fell off the stage during a concert when she was promoting the album before, you know, Easter. And she was, she was just recuperating and just getting back into the swing of things. And so I went to interview her um, for the press materials at one fifth Avenue. And, um, and, you know, we had, we had, we had a great meeting and, and it was just like everything I'd wanted it to be. And we talked about film, which, you know, which was my, you know, original, you know, area of expertise um and then like i said and you know and then she was in the studio and she was making easter and then we were at that we were at that show at the end of 1977 where she 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 premiered because the night and um that's it and it was like it was during it was during it was during the holiday break it was like in between christmas and new years of 77 well before the album was going to come out and so no one had kind of no no one had knew what she was up to but um she premiered that song and springsteen got on stage and played it with her Mm -hmm. at at its live debut Mm -hmm. and those of us that were in the in in the theater at, at the time we just you know, this is the this is like a culmination. This is like when you're hearing something for the first time that you know is going to be just one of those things that's going to just change the dynamic of an artist's career. Like the first time you heard Beyonce's first single as a solo artist. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, we were in the room and put on that record, and. Yeah, it's just one of those records all around the world by Lisa Stansfield, uh, How Will I Know by Whitney. Um, just, you know, the idea that you're one of the small group of people that's witnessing the beginning of, 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 of a major event, a yeah. ma- like a major yeah. musical thing. And you got, I mean, once in a while, you got to be in the room for that. And and just go, oh, my God, this is just, I can't wait to play this for everybody. I can't wait for everyone else to hear it. it it's part of it, it's part of the thrill of, a, of A&R is that you get to be one of the people that helps them shape that thing. Right, right. Um, that, you know, I always, when I was pursuing, you know, acts as an A&R guy, I said, like, I don't know what I don't know what other record labels are saying to you. I don't know what anyone is promising you, but here's what I can say. I can say that I'm gonna try my best to help you make the record that you're gonna proud to be proud to have your name on, mm-hmm. that you can stand behind it, and, you know, and, and, and that conveys your vision. And the other thing I can promise is that we we're gonna let people know that it exists. We're gonna just mm-hmm. we're gonna put it out there and you're gonna have the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they're gonna want to take the money out of their pocket and be a part of it is, is completely up to them. Mm-hmm. But these are the things that I can I can assure you. And yeah. um beyond that, it's it's it, you know we're in a very whimsical, you know, mm-hmm. not I not quantifiable business um right and and part of the story of the music business is 
the is the is the unexpected is yeah. you know it's like why did why did the first Elton John single come out on a album on a label distributed by Bell Records and then it didn't connect and then you know so Larry Utah declined to to release the first Elton John record. Elton John could have been a bell artist, you know. I mean, it's like it's just you know the you know the arbitrariness of things, yeah, and yeah. I, and and that's what fascinates me so yeah. much about the music business is so much is left up to chance. Like as an A and R guy, you know, you're right some of the time, you miss out some of the times, but you know, there's always that chance that out of the blue. There's going to be a record like Because Tonight or Crazy in Love or How Will I Know or All Around the World or, or Freeway of Love. It's like, and it's going to make everything worthwhile. Yeah. It's going to, you know, Under the Milky Way was that, was, was that kind of record for me. Right. Angel Eyes for the Jeff Healy Band was that kind of record yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, sure. Maxwell's first album on Columbia that I, I A&R'd. Um, you know, I'm just watching that album slowly, slowly, slowly take off, you know, and, and, yeah. and eventually go platinum and then see Maxwell eventually like headline the Apollo theater and then headline the garden. It's like when you know you're the person that first heard the potential on the, on the cassette and then you're walking up to that arena and it says Maxwell sold out or, yeah. you know, or, or you, you know, it's like, that's what that's why that's why we do what we do i mean that's that's you know that's you know i mean that's the thrill of it i mean it wasn't all at Aristotle. obviously i had those moments at columbia also uh but yeah i mean maxwell was was just one of those artists that because there were so many obstacles the success was that much more rewarding and more validating i believe it well, thanks for writing this book, Mitchell, and thanks for uh, talking with me about it. I just think I, you, you and I are on the same page about this. I find the music industry endlessly fascinating, especially the classic industry that we all think of, and that's that. Yeah, that's I mean, we can have many discussions about. It. I don't know how A and R people work now. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what the what the general dynamic of finding new artists is. Yeah. But I know that when I was doing it in the in in the eighties and nineties, that it was a very very exciting time because yeah. it, it just seemed like any, almost anything was possible. Yeah, it does. All right, there you have it, Mitchell Cohen. Once again, the book is called "Looking for the Magic: New York City, the Seventies, and the Rise of Arista Records." And if you find stuff like labels and swapping and bands that are going from one to the next and the history of record labels and who was on what and how those labels quarter came together to form bigger labels and the artists that helped them do that and whatnot, the marketing campaigns for certain acts, um, that's all kind of what's involved in this history book here. It is fascinating. It reminded me a lot of the Lenny K book from a few months ago that I was talking about, Lightning Striking. They know each other, actually. In fact, bless Mitchell's heart, he sent me a copy of his other book that's about white label albums. It's basically like 100 albums you need to know that you probably don't know. I can't wait to read that one. Oh, uh, I buried the lead here. We have a free copy of this book to give away. It's for any Patreon supporter. 
Next Sunday, I will be picking a winner. And so you have a week, basically, to join Patreon if you want. The link is here in the notes of the show. And you can join up, and you can, uh, for $2 a month, that's all you donate, you can be in line for any swag that we give away. If you want to donate 5 bucks a month, you'll get that. And I will keep you abreast of anyone I interview, and you can submit questions for those interviews if you want. All right? And they might get used. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man for everything that he does. Uh, we love you, folks. We'll talk to you soon. Oh, wait. We, the socials. You know the socials. You can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Okay? All right. Thanks, folks.